Boys and girls, I wish someone had taught me that at that age, because I didn't know and I did fall in, in things that I wish I had not, so that was great, wasn't it? Simple, (laughs) profoundly true, so thank you so much. So I would encourage you to check out the classes that are going to be offered the next cycle in there. Uh, We try to do most of our equipping from 9 to 10 on Sunday mornings. And uh, so uh, I would just look through that. Um, I'm sure all of us have different areas that we could be equipped in. Uh, For most of us, we could go to several of those. But just find the one where you feel like you have the greatest need for equipping right now whether it happens to be just listening and working through a book of the Bible or learning what it means to be a better teacher or figuring out how God has shaped you uh, for significance and making a difference in this world. Um, Just go through there and and, uh, pick the one uh, where you can best be equipped. Uh, One of the specific callings that God has put upon uh, those of us who lead the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And uh, that time from 9 to 10 is, is really a key part of that. Um, so we're going to be jumping right back into 1 Peter this morning. And uh, so if you've got a copy of the Bible or if you want to look it up electronically, however you want to do that, uh, I'm going to be gone for the next couple of weeks. Uh, God has given Camilla and I a chance to go back uh, to the south and catch up with four of our kids and their families, and so uh, we're going to really enjoy doing that. Jerry Vandewall will be preaching in my place, and he's going to continue right through the book of 1 Peter, and uh, so that that will be really good, and um, I just, uh, you know, you don't come to church for whoever's preaching, I hope. I hope you come to church because uh, the Lord chooses to manifest Himself in congregational gatherings in ways that cannot be experienced in any other format uh, during the week. And uh, he he uses people to do that. And uh, and so just keep on on being faithful and let the Lord continue to to grow and mature mature you in the ways that he would want to. One of the fun things about going and visiting our kids is we'll get to go to church with them. And that's always a special treat. And uh, so we're really looking forward to that. So we're going to look at verses 3 through 9 this morning, um, but bef- oh, let me say this too. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, at the end of the message, so if you're not familiar with how we approach the Lord's table, uh, I just would encourage you, even as I'm preaching, that you would kind of read through this salmon-colored piece and uh, that describes that, because I will not give a lot of explanation when we actually get to the Lord's table. And, uh, and let me also say this, if you ever have a question about that, or even this morning you're not too sure, um, even as they're passing the plates, don't, don't hesitate to lean over and ask the person next to you, or just come down front and ask. Uh, that's, that's the point of being a family, right, is uh, we can function that way. Well, so we're going to be jumping in these verses 3 through 9, which is an amazingly full description of what it means to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and before we jump in there, let's just remind ourselves of why 
uh, Peter wrote this book. It's found actually in verse 12 of the last chapter. But he says, let's read this together. I have written to you briefly... Okay, so he is writing this book because there's a lot of confusion about what the grace of God is. There's a lot of confusion about what it means to live in relationship with God. There's a lot of confusion about what God gives to his people. There was then, there is today. And so he says, I write this exhorting and testifying that what is in this book, and you could expand it to the whole Bible, but what is in here is the true grace of God. And it's very different than what a a lot of us think the grace of God is or should be. It, It calls us to very different responses in some particular situations. And he's going to get to that as we continue to weave our way through the book of 1 Peter. But here in these verses, 3 through 9, we get an amazing description of God's grace that brings us into a relationship with him and what that means from start to finish in these few verses. So I hope you're ready to drink from a fire hose because these are blow-your-mind kind of realities about the true grace of God in these few verses. And here's what we're going to see. There is a fullness to what God has gifted to us, His grace, that, that is not available anyplace else. And there is a security to it that is to be found in no other place. And, and the point of the book is, The point that Peter makes is, I want to tell you about the true grace of God, and then I want to ask you to stand in the grace. If a Christian life is like a tree, what he's saying is, put your roots down deep into the grace of God. And there's a recognition just implicit within this that a lot of times we put our roots out into other things. Those things will never deliver. And so, here's the true grace of God. Put your roots down in it. And as we are a tree planted in the true grace of God, then he brings a life that only he can bring. He makes it very clear we live in an adversarial world. It is stained by sin in ways we see and in ways that we are oblivious to. And he wants us to put our roots down into the grace of God so that we would be a flourishing tree. That no matter how hostile the environment, we would flourish because we're dependent upon something that this world does not offer, but God freely gives to those of us who are his people. Now, I should emphasize that we're not alone in this. All right? Look around you. This is not a Lone Ranger kind of life. This is a life that we are in together. And do you know how hard it is to find pictures of a bunch of trees flourishing with other scrub brush around? Why? Because it doesn't work in nature. But it works in the kingdom of God in this world. It works. And so, in these few verses... 
Peter is going to lay out for us, here's the true grace of God about your salvation. It's fuller than you can imagine, and it's more secure than anything else possibly in this world. So let me read verses 3 through 9, and, uh, and you can follow along there, and then we'll just spend some time letting this, these words uh, wash over us and explain to us the true grace of God so that we can plant ourselves more firmly in it. Beginning in verse 3. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go back to verse 1. There's only two verses in front of it, right? We might as well begin there. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Thank you for these words that come right from you, God. Thank you for this amazing description, exclamation, explanation of your true grace to us. Man, open our eyes to see more of the beauty and the greatness of your grace, and then help us to plant ourselves more firmly in that grace in whatever particular circumstances we're in this day. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we saw in verses 1 and 2 that uh, our relationship to this world, because of God's work of grace to us, it, it describes us as aliens or foreigners in the relationship to this world. Because we have a life that didn't come from this world, it doesn't come from what any of us have to offer, it comes from God, and we're told the behind-the-scenes stuff that God did, God the Father did, God the Spirit did, God uh, the Son did, to, in order to bring us this life. And that is that we are chosen or we are elect, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. And so here's this amazing description of how the three persons of God gang up to bring us into grace. God the Father has a relationship with us 
is, which is described as one as father. And that's a relationship cap, uh, captured in that amazing word, he foreknoweth. He, he has a foreknowledge of us. He has a relationship with us whereby we are his father and, and we are his children. And the way we become his children is the Spirit of God comes upon our life and he sanctifies us. He sets us apart. Now, Jesus described this in John 16 as him coming to us and convincing us of our sin, that we did not believe in Jesus, of the righteousness of God, because he's more holy than anything that we know of in this world, and of the judgment to come because Satan has been defeated. And so the Spirit comes along and performs this holy work, which really takes the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on his life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and applies it to our lives. We come to experience that, as this verse says, by being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. We call out to him and say, you are the Christ, you are my Savior, you are my Lord, and we experience the sprinkling of his blood, the forgiveness of all our sins that we have so marvelously sung about this morning. And so that's the way God works behind the scenes. Now, in these next verses in 3 through 9, he's going to explain, if you will, the whole Christian life and what it means to experience and live in this grace that he gives. And you'll find that it is a combination, and it's mixed with doxology or praise to God or rejoicing in what God has done while also being very clear about the experiences that we go through in this life. And so after explaining what God has done behind the scenes, Peter breaks out in this doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's an appropriate response, wouldn't you say? I mean, when you hear what God did to take you out of the world and take you out of depending upon yourself and take you out of a destination of hell and to put you in his grace, I mean, what kind of a response should there be? I mean, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, God, that you would do this. And then he goes on and further explains the greatness of this work, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Now, this term born again is a word that Jesus introduced to describe how someone becomes a follower of Jesus, how they become a Christian, how they get planted in the grace of God. You remember, that's the term that he used when uh, the religious leader Nicodemus came to him who knew something was up with Jesus, but he couldn't put his finger on it. And Jesus used this term to describe how someone is born from above, how someone is born of the Spirit. And so Peter picks that up here and saying, man, it is, it is God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great what? Mercies, this is not something you deserve. This is not something you earn. This is just purely a work, and not just a mercy, but a what? Great mercy. For some of us, it's a great, 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 great mercy, because nobody taught me that song early on. 
And I dug some pretty big holes. And it was a great, great, great mercy by which I was born again, by which any person can be born again. And of course, a couple things about this uh, idea of being born again. Uh, a couple connections to the, to the physical birth of coming into this world. One is, we have as much to do with our being spiritually born as we did physically being born. We just experience it. Now, how does that happen? Go over to verse 23 there. Chapter 1, verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord, what? Endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. How does he say a person is born again? By the word of God. The word of God is a seed. And he says, and we preached this to you. We delivered the seed to you. So somewhere along the way, someone reads the word of God. Someone tells them the word of God. And, and that word, which is imperishable, brings a life to a person, and they are born again. And so he says, you have been born again by the great mercy of God to a living hope. A living hope. There's a lot of things in this world to make it seem hopeless. Would you agree? It's easy and we read about it every day, and we all know people personally who get to the point who says, say, this life is not worth living anymore. It would have been better if I'd never been born. Part of what being born again brings is it brings a living hope. Now, it has to be cultivated, but it brings a living hope because what? It's based upon what? What does it say? It's based upon and comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope because just as Jesus paid for the penalty of sin so that we would never experience the condemnation of sin, it's a living hope because just as Jesus rendered sin impotent we never have to get to the point of saying, I'm powerless to win over this sin. It's a living hope because just as Jesus was crucified and raised and he defeated Satan, and so all of Satan's accusations against us will never last. They'll never rest. It's a living hope because Jesus, through his resurrection, swallowed up disease and sadness and death, everything with life. And so he says, man, if you've been born again, you have a living hope. Because it's not through some founder who is dead now. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just through the Lord Jesus Christ, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That is great power. And so he begins by describing how a person begins their Christian life by being born again according to the great mercies of God to this living hope. And now what he does is he jumps to the full extreme of what that living hope is all the way at the other end of this. And he goes on in the next verse to say, to an inheritance. If you have been born again and God is your father, your father gives an inheritance. Pretty cool picture, huh? Again, it's not deserved. He gives an inheritance, and how is it described there in verse 4? Imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Imperishable. It will never, never decay. It will never cease to be. Undefiled. It's unstained by sin. This is a word that's used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely unstained by sin, will not fade away. Now think about that. Think about that description for a moment. What in our earthly existence can be compared to this? What in our earthly existence is imperishable, undefiled, and does not fade away? What do you come up with? A big fat what? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, there are stages where things are growing and they're getting more beautiful, but what happens? Then they start to die. Everything in this world is stained by sin, as beautiful as it is. And I'm sure hoping the cloud cover burns off so I can watch those planes again today. <laughs> Everything in this world is stained by sin. That plane might crash. It's going to wear out. It's just crazy to think about the inheritance God gives because there's no comparison in this world. This caused the Apostle Paul, as he was writing to Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, where he takes a verse out of Isaiah and he says, you need to understand that for those who love God, God has prepared for them something that eye has never seen and ear has never heard, and in fact, it has never even entered into the heart of a person how great and how good those things are. And in fact, he says in that context, you need to know that if the people who had, were responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, whether it was demonic and or human, if they had understood that, they would not have put Christ to death. That's how clueless we are about this. And so Peter says, you just need to know, if you have been born again, you have a living hope. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. And what's the best part about it with those last few words in that verse? Reserved in heaven for what? You. Reserved in heaven for you. So here's the question that that prompts for each and every one of us this morning. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you come to that point where you became convinced 
that you were not trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that you understood something about the righteousness of God, and you knew, I'm in big trouble. It's not a matter of how many sins I've committed. It's the fact that I've committed any sin. And that God has meted out his judgment upon Satan in the person of Christ. And you came to the point of saying, Jesus, you're my Savior and you're my Lord. If that has happened in your life, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away for you. For you. So, Robin, let me ask you, have you been born again? Well, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved with your name on it. Pretty special. Pretty special. Pretty special. How about you, Daniel? Have you been born again? Yeah. You have an inheritance in heaven. It's imperishable, undefiled. It will never fade away. And it's got your name on it. Amazing, isn't it? That's the ultimate part of the living hope that God has for us. Now, you might say, well, that's all great, but what about between here and there? (laughs) I mean, what about today? Well, he goes on and addresses that. Because grace doesn't just get you this, and grace doesn't just get you that. Look at the next part of the verse here. Who are protected by the power of God. Who are protected by the power of God. Here's what he's saying. You'll get there. You'll get there. If you've been born again, you're protected by what? Say it. The power of God. Some of your translations probably say guarded. It's a military term. God, once you're born again, he will get you there. What do you say to that? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now think about this. Think about the person that God is using to give this word to, the apostle Peter. So Peter is called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mean, he has some amazing moments of faith in God, doesn't he? Walking on water. But that's followed by what? Amazing moments of unbelief in God. And if you follow the life of Peter, it comes to this huge crescendo on the night the Lord Jesus Christ is betrayed where he pulls out his sword and hacks off the high priest ear because he's not going to live in grace. He's going to live in what he can do. And there's some things happening that ought not to happen. And so he grabs that sword and Jesus rebukes him. And then three times he denies that he has any relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he even swears an oath that he does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus pursues Peter. We know nothing about it, but it says that he met with Peter. Peter was there in the upper room that night, the first resurrection day. He was there the next day. So he had several encounters with the resurrected Christ. And after those encounters, what does he do? He goes back to fishing for fish and not for men. Jesus said, back here, you'll follow me and be a fisher of people. And what does Jesus do there? He does a little bit more discipling. 
Here's a man who says these words that God uses to give these words that knew God would protect him and get him there through all of his failures. In fact, interestingly, we know of Peter from the book of Galatians that at some point, even as an apostle, he stopped eating with non-Jewish people and would only eat with Jews, and Paul came and rebuked him to his face. You see, we get from there to there because God protects us. God protects us. If you've been born again, you will get your inheritance because he protects us along the way. So what's this deal about the next little phrase there? Who are protected by the power of God through faith. Through faith. This is the kind of, this is a, now, well, let me say this. Certainly faith is a characteristic of people who have been born again. Imperfect faith, right? But it is a characteristic of people who have been born again. But that's not what this is referring to. This is referring to how do you live in and enjoy the protection of God along the way? How do you, how do you enjoy the protection from being born again to getting your inheritance? Let, let me look at it this way. Let's say that I go to a place to stay, and, uh, and in that place, I am, I am scared to be there by myself. Now, does my being scared to be there affect my safety at all? What's the answer? None of us like this answer, but just say it. Does my being scared make me any safer? No. It doesn't affect my security at all. And in fact, if something should happen... It will not help my response either. Now, should I be alert? Yes. But, but fear and faith are on opposite spectrums. And all fear does is rob us of, the, of what God is doing. It robs us of his provision. It robs us of his grace. It robs us of his protection. Faith is the way to enjoy God's protection from the day that we're born again to the day that we get to that inheritance. Our faith doesn't get us there, but it sure helps us enjoy and live in the grace of God because fear and freak out means that we're putting our roots out into something other than the grace of God. It's faith that helps us live in and enjoy the protection of God. We will be protected either way. If you've been born again, you'll get your inheritance. But why don't you just live by grace between there and there? How do you do that? By faith. By faith for a salvation. Let's see, where are we here? Five. Uh, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now you're saying, okay, that's great in theory, but uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of hurts that have entered my life. In fact, there's, there's some things right now knocking on my door. I don't know the way I can take these. Well, he goes on and talks about those in these next couple of verses here. He says, in this, in this protection, in this grace, you greatly rejoice. 
even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So he talks about this paradoxical nature of the Christian life from the time that we're born again until we get to the time of the perfections of heaven and the full inheritance. And the paradoxical nature of this life is we rejoice that God has caused us to be born again, and we rejoice that that's our future. But the other side is there are various trials and tribulations and temptations that batter against us and are our experience in the midst of these days that we live. And there's a little word in there, two words actually. Well, in verse 6, two little words that say these are not useless trials and even gives us a little perspective. First of all, the perspective. He says, even though for a, what's those next, that next word? Little while. Now, I know it doesn't feel like a little while in the midst of it. I get that. Sometimes you wonder if you can make it through the night. But in compared to this inheritance, what, billions upon billions? I mean, this is longer than our national debt. This is a big deal. So even if it's 30 or 40 or 50 years of the same trial, it's a little while compared to this. And they're not wasted. What's it say? If necessary. I would underline that or circle that. If necessary. And he goes on and explains why they would be necessary in the next verse. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he says, why would these trials be necessary? Why is, why is it necessary to be tempted? Why is it necessary that hurts enter our lives? He says, because they produce a proof of our faith, so that the proof of our faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says there's, there's something that trials and temptation do that's necessary because we have a default position not to live in grace. We have a default position to depend upon ourselves or depend upon the counsel and advice of other people that would, that would cause us to say, other ways than God will keep me safe. Other ways than God will protect me from getting hurt. And so God has to pry our fingers off of our own comforts sometimes, off of our dependency upon ourselves, our security upon ourselves, and all those things. He has to pry our fingers off of those things. And how does he do that? Through testings and trials, if necessary. I've always wondered, you know, if I just gave everything up, would none of these things happen? 
well, that's probably a true statement, but I never will give them all up. And, and so he brings these things to show the genuineness or the proof of our faith is what that first statement says. What does that mean? It means that as he pries our fingers off of things and we stand firm in the grace of God, the grace of God does something in our life where we will say, wow, God, wow, God, putting my faith and trust in you brings something to me and through me that all of my protectionism and all of my trying to avoid this could never have done. It shows that there is nothing like faith in God. There's nothing like what living in His grace brings to our life. Romans 12, 2 says, it's so easy to get conformed into this world. God's calling is for us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might prove the good and acceptable and perfect way of God. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about these tests and trials are to release our grip and to cause us to put our roots down into this grace of God into our relationship with God. And, and part of what that does, well, any, so what's the analogy here? Like gold. How do you refine gold? Put it in the fire. And it burns the impurities off. And, but then he says, gold is perishable. But what about your faith in the grace of God? It will never perish. In fact, as you get rooted, as I get rooted more and the more in the grace of God, what does it result in? The end of verse 7 there. In the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It adds up. It adds up to that day when we stand before Christ. To His praise and to His honor and to His glory. I've often, Camilla and I have talked about this and, and wonder if on that day, uh, when I get there, the Lord is going to some, say something like this, look at what I can do with this guy. You should have seen him back there, and they'll all say, we saw him back there. <laughs> we saw him along the way here. We thought he was a hopeless case. And God's going to say, Nope. Look at what I can do. And you know what I'm going to say? Look at what he can do. To his praise, to his garner, to his glory. If necessary, these things come into our lives. I've been walking down the road this week with uh, Cherise Shank. And many of you know Stan and Charisse, and um, they were here two weeks ago. And uh, a week ago, yesterday, Stan had a very severe stroke and uh, was in the hospital, and they did surgery because there was a lot of blood. And uh, so anyway, I went down there, I think it was on Tuesday, and sat with them and went in to see Stan. And... Um, 
just one of those amazing times where you get discipled so much by somebody in crisis. And so I sat there with Sharice, and some of you know her story even better than I do, but um, Sharice and her husband, Marty, her first husband, Marty, uh, he was a student at Talbot, and he was getting ready to graduate, and they were going to the mission field, and they were very active here. And uh, Marty went out and played basketball one day. They had a little baby, Crystal. Marty went out to play basketball one day, didn't feel good, so he went to the doctor's office, and he died in the doctor's office of a blood clot. And Charisse just recounted that, and how um, she knew the command, the encouragement from the Lord to in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And she just could not bring herself to do that for the big thing. But she says, I could thank God for the fact that he was in the doctor's office. I could thank God for the other things. But she said, you know, over the next few years, because I was in such a fog, God brought me to the place where I could say thank you, Father, because of what it had produced in my heart and life. And I reminded her of a song that she sang right here. And the point of the song was, when you cannot trust, when you cannot understand the hand of God, trust the heart of God. And that has always stuck with me. That's probably 27, 28 years ago. And then I had the chance to marry Stan and Charisse right here. And uh, Stan had a crazy background. He grew up as an unbeliever, went through one marriage, uh, married Anne, who was a dedicated follower of Christ. She went down the road of brain cancer and uh, was graduated into glory. And then he and Sharice got married. He was like 15 years older than she was. And uh, so anyway, um, and Sharice just said, you know, God has just taught me so much. She just said, my request to the Lord is that it not be so fast next time. And as it turns out, it hasn't been so fast uh, I was, went down yesterday when they realized Stan is absolutely unresponsive and so was there in the hospital room and singing and praying as they removed the ventilator and took everything off. And he's still breathing today. <laughs> but Cherise could look back and say, necessary trial forced me to put my roots into the grace of God. And here she is 25 years later and she's teaching me. And it's helping her walk. Doesn't make it less painful. Just gives you a perspective. Just gives you a perspective. And when she gets to heaven, there's gonna be so much praise and honor and glory to Jesus because she understood and she's embraced the grace of God in her life. So that the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the question is for each of us today, what is the necessary thing that God has brought into our life 
by which he's trying to get us to put our faith into his grace. He's trying to wean us off of the things that are not grace so that we might live in that grace. And so I just encourage you to say, Lord, this is the hurt, this is the trial, this is what's going on. Thank you. I will choose to trust and walk in your grace, not to lean on my own understanding. Well, everything that Peter has said so far is a, is a common experience for both he and the people he's writing to as well as us today. But he does something in the last two verses here that's really cool. You see, Peter obviously saw Jesus, lived with him, saw the resurrected Christ. And, uh, and so when he talks about a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, I mean, he, he, he hung around with the resurrected Christ. Can you imagine that? I mean, he got served a meal by the resurrected Christ. And so when he pens that, I mean, there's got to be some thoughts that are just kind of off the Richter scale for him personally about what that means for the resurrected Christ. But, but here he's writing to people who, who have never seen the resurrected Christ. He's writing to you and I. He was also there that second Sunday night when Thomas finally came in who said that I would never believe in Christ unless I can see him and put my hands in his wounds. And, G and Peter heard Jesus say to Thomas, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And that's the blessing that he passes on here in verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There is a unique grace that comes to us who have never seen the resurrected Christ in person. And Peter says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, my brothers and sisters, because though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This grace, it's full. I mean, it's off the charts full and it's secure. What a great God we have. Amen? What a great God. And it's very appropriate that we come to the Lord's table then as a reminder of how secure this is and how full this is. So, men, if you'd get ready to serve us, and we're going to sing about how great our God is, but let me read just some verses from Romans chapter 8 as we come into the Lord's table. Let me begin in verse 28 of Romans 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? What's the answer? Nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Will he freely give us all things? Everything we need. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Are you one of God's elect? If you've been born again, you are. No one can. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? What's the answer? Nobody. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.